Welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast sponsored by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Barb, your host for this episode, and with me are Devin. Hello. And Jana. Hi. To discuss this month's pick, Being a Human, Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness by Charles Foster. And spoiler alert, again, today we'll be discussing Being a Human in its entirety. So if you haven't finished reading it yet, you might want to come back to this episode when you've done so. Let's start with a bit about the author and his newest book. British legal scholar, veterinary surgeon, and naturalist Charles Foster writes across many fields, travel, evolutionary biology, natural history and anthropology, theology, philosophy, and law. He holds a Ph.D. in law and bioethics from Cambridge University and teaches medical law and ethics at Oxford. Foster lives in Oxford and a remote part of the southern Peloponnese with his wife and six children. Being a human... Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness builds on Foster's 2016 book, Being a Beast, in which he set out to understand the consciousness of animal species by living as a badger, otter, fox, deer, and swift. Now he inhabits three crucial periods of human development to understand the consciousness of perhaps the strangest animal of all, the human being. To experience the Upper Paleolithic Era, a turning point when humans became behaviorally modern, painting caves and telling stories, Foster learns what it feels like to be a Cro-Magnon hunter-gatherer by living in makeshift shelters without amenities in the rural woods of England. He tests his five impoverished senses to forage for berries and roadkill, and he undertakes shamanic journeys to explore the connection of wakeful dreaming to religion. For the Neolithic period, when humans stayed in one place and domesticated plants and animals, forever altering our connection to the natural world, he moves to a reconstructed Neolithic settlement. Finally, to explore the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, and the end of the soul, Foster inspects Oxford colleges, dissecting rooms, cafes, and art galleries. He finds his world and himself bizarre and disembodied, and he rues the atrophy of our senses, the cause for much of what ails us. Being a Human was named Best Book of 2021 by Kirkus Reviews, The Atlantic, and The New Statesman. So now let's throw some stars at this book. Jana, would you like to start us off? Sure. Um, I I really ended up liking this book. Um, I picked this book because I order for philosophy, mm-hmm. and it falls in that uh, collection. Um, this book has so much to offer in terms of the expansiveness. It covers so much of human history and touches on Um, three main periods that were pivotal in human development, the Upper Paleolithic, the Neolithic, and the Enlightenment. Um, He is a professor at Oxford, and so as I was listening, I took a lot of notes because I felt sometimes bombarded with information, um, and it could be a little overwhelming at times. And then on the other hand, I felt immersed by his writing when he was outside in nature, and I could sense 
um, the crustaceans that he was boiling in this pot of water with seaweed and mud and, you know, that they were going to eat that and the visceralness of it. And I really like that because um, I love poetry and I love when things are just really strongly written that you can grasp them. They're very tangible. So that part of his writing uh, is is just it's so gripping. And I like that a lot. Um, I liked that he is just in this experience of having an existential crisis, I think, in his life and kind of asking this huge question of like, well, who am I really? Who are we as people? And to me, that is, when you think about it, it's one of the biggest questions that you can ask about your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all have to struggle to answer that. Why are we here? What is the ultimate meaning in our lives? And he's going back to this period um, in the upper Paleolithic, where he says that we were kind of at, in some ways, a pinnacle of like humans experiencing life the way we were meant to experience it. Mm-hmm. And that for most of the years, um, thousands of years that we were humans, it was prior to this very tiny slice of modern age. And so much of what's going on with us is due to our history um, and is buried in our subconscious. And mm-hmm. I thought that was such a fascinating thing to consider uh, with our modern lives. And he points out a lot of the ills of modern society. Sure does. Um, <laughs> this is a long-winded <laughs> response, but I had... We're looking for stars, Jan. I just had <laughs> such, a, such a, um, a strong reaction to this book. It really hit me right where I needed it. It was just... Mm. Um, so I'm going to give it four and a half stars because I feel like <laughs> it is something that... You know, I I know that he was struggling a little bit, and I could see that, you know, people might feel that in the writing, but um, this is just right up my alley in terms of, like, let's let's ask these hard questions, um, and the way that he did it, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's one good vote in his yeah. favor. How about you, Devin? <laughs> well, um, I am the opposite of my lovely colleague, Jana, here. I do not like... The overly poetic and lyrical, drawn out, descriptive style of writing. Um, give me the facts. Give me the cold hard facts. Um, and he does at some yes. points in this book. And when he does, that is when I really enjoyed it. Um, I really wanted to like this book. I really did. I enjoy this subject. I like this topic a lot. I heard good things about his other books. Um, but it was just too much to slog through. And I don't know if it was just I didn't have time or I felt pressured, but it was too dense for me, too hard to follow. It jumps around a lot. He's long-winded. Um, I feel like he tried too hard. I started it out as an audiobook, mm-hmm. and I just found myself being so easily distracted, and 15, 20 minutes would go by, and I'd be thinking of something else. And the podcast or the the audiobook is playing, and I don't have any memory of what I just listened to. So I switched to print book, which made it a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I I'm I'm not a fan. I'm gonna give it two and a half stars. Okay, fair enough. Well, um, I guess I land somewhere in the middle <laughs> of our opinions of this book. I have to start by saying it is like no other book I have ever read. It was at times fascinating and at times exasperating. It felt at times long, like an impenetrable slog. He does indeed throw tons of information at you. And the book is 
definitely thought-provoking. I found it uh, a number of times. I, I really uh, enjoyed, for example, the section on the development of uh, human language and where he ties that to music and baby talk. And, and it's just, yeah, you can really um, enjoy the, uh, the, the intellectual stimulation here that he's throwing at you. And he does have a wonderful writing style. It can be very poetic, and it can be at times dry. But I found it was strongest at both ends of the book. That was my impression. And really, after the long slog that this book was, <laughs> I felt that the last chapter really redeemed the entire work for me. After all the, the frustration that came beforehand, particularly when he starts ranting about the ills of modern life. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm going to ratchet back and give him 3.5 stars. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, there I am in the middle. So before we launch into the discussing the work in great detail, um, I wanted to just touch base a little bit on the genre here. And and I actually put in our notes here, nature writing, question mark, because I I think he defies categorization in this work. Yeah. It's like he hit every check mark, yeah. but maybe yeah. like romance? Just about. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, there's, there's no there romance. Were, well, yeah. I mean, he's in love with nature, I guess. I, you could say that, yeah. He's certainly in love with... with Himself? It, it, <laughs> experiencing yes. things in his person. You know, he's not just going to give you the cold, hard facts. He wants to go out and feel yeah. it. Yeah. And 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 props to him. But, you know, uh, nature writing can be broad. Um, it, it, the, the, the definition I found was nonfiction or fiction prose or poetry about the natural environment. Well, that covers a lot. Um, it can be... Uh, a wide variety of works. It could be something that places emphasis on natural history facts, which he did. I mean, there were places there where he was sounding like a field guide. Mm -hmm. And and then you can stretch that out into philosophical interpretation. And boy, did he pile that on too. So I have a feeling, you know, yeah, he falls in that category, but he's doing so much more, it seems. Uh, he's throwing scientific information at you. He's throwing facts about the natural world. And yet he's also writing in the first person, which makes it come off very mm, personal. Kind of like a memoir. <clears throat> Rather yeah. like a memoir. And he's obviously spending a lot of time thinking about what he's feeling and trying to describe that for you. And uh, so, yeah, this is a really hard work to peg. And, yeah. and Jana, you wanted to add something here too, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it does touch on the philosophical, asking the really yes. big questions, like I mentioned, about mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. and meaning. Um, but it also reminded me a little bit of a self-help manifesto. And I also order <laughs> for self-help. And sometimes you have the writers and they have an agenda. And it, it felt like this was his agenda. Um, mm -hmm. And he was kind of ticking off the reasons why we should – um, embrace his argument and, and almost like, why should we go off the grid? And, and, uh, should we change our lifestyle mm -hmm. in the end? Like, I don't think it ended up being that way. It's more nu nuanced and we'll talk about that. But I did get the sense of, um, you know, kind of him pushing a little bit his agenda or his argument. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Devin, did you have any thoughts on that one? I mean, you guys nailed it. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I have here Ingram, which is our, um, Bender, they have it labeled as evolutionary psychology, which wow, check check, you know, mm -hmm. all that, everything that you said before, yeah, <laughs> all that and more. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, it is really all over the place. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to start with a shout out to Lit Lovers uh, and their website where they have some wonderful questions for discussing nonfiction works, and we we stole a few here. So we're going to start with, what is the central idea discussed in this book? What issues or ideas does the author explore? Are they personal, sociological, global, political, economic, spiritual, medical, or scientific? Um, well, I feel like, you know, with the genre discussion that we just had, it, it's kind of the same answer. He covers all of these mm-hmm. <laughs> ideas. Um, mm-hmm. He seemed to me very focused on the spiritual world and how to reach the same state of consciousness as, you know, his his mystical ex that he talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems a little obsessed with fasting and shamanism, um, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. I just, I don't know, in a in a book about being a human, I guess. Caught me by surprise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's talking about spirit animals and vision quests. Um, in the book, he says he's searching for the origins of symbolism. The most potent symbols are words. So, I mean, I don't even know how to answer this question because <laughs> it's like everything that I say is the right answer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> but and you're yes. right that it was a departure from the the purely scientific, yeah. right? And if you're reading it thinking, oh, this is written by an Oxford professor, it's going to follow the scientific method. Well, no, no, it's not. And he's like Mm -hmm. throwing that kind of throwing that over, Mm -hmm. getting out from under that mantle and and saying, well, actually, like enlightenment, like you were not the end all be all. Like, let's examine all this other stuff, which falls into, like Devin was saying, the mystical realm. Mm. Um, yeah, that was just and, out of the field. Yeah, and that, that that is like also a really big part of being human, but it's not um, it's not discussed so much in the academy. And right. he writes um, that we often slouch along in four dimensions with the fifth one being time, whereas there have mm. been scientific studies showing that people can actually was it perceive up to 11 dimensions or oh, that yes. we're somehow designed mm-hmm. for so much more oh, absolutely. than what we actually experience? We, lo- mm-hmm. we use like a very small percentage of our brain power. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and who mm-hmm. knows what that can do? Right. Exactly. You know? I mean, that does extend into the spirit world and stuff. I mean, yeah, we'll talk yeah. about it eventually, but all these out-of-body experiences and mm-hmm. clairvoyant, you know, things that he talks mm-hmm. about. But I think from, from a personal left level, it just resonated with me because I feel like – I'm also the most alive when I'm outside. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I love Mm -hmm. to backpack. And um, sometimes I'll be out like for several days in the canyon or um, through mountains, you know, and I know it's not the same as as being a hunter gatherer in a way, but I feel Mm -hmm. like that is kind of like when you start to experience really being alive for me, it's because there isn't like a distraction of um, the day-to-day world and you're actually like living in that moment because you're like face to face with the elements, you can't get away from it. You have and he to. talks about our, yeah. our our lit greenhouses that as our offices and our homes that are <laughs> yes. away from nature and the mm-hmm. elements and that we're kind of in these bubbles. Whereas he's saying the human body evolved in nature in this in this environment and that's mm-hmm. kind of where we're the most alive. That's where we really resonate. That's where all of us comes to the surface and right. starts to interact. And so that part, um, I really agreed with, and I also went foraging last summer, and, and so I was thinking about that experience when I was looking for mushrooms, that there was this sense of, like, normally I feed myself by getting stuff from the store, mm-hmm. but I went looking for this specific mushroom, and I started to feel, like, more connected 
with my environment. Yeah. And I had never felt that before. Mm, and what, I, what kind of mushroom was this? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about spiritual world. There we go. So it's a porcini. A porcini so grows in Colorado. I didn't know um, that. Yeah. I've and, done that with a friend of mine. Yeah, it's fun. Wow. And so, and okay. And so then I came back and I was just taking a walk and I started to be like, oh, is that food? Is that food? And then mm. I had to step back and think, okay, we need to be careful here. You can't, you know, but it was a different way of inhabiting my life. Right, mm-hmm. right. That I hadn't really experienced before. That's neat. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, if you were living in these, you know, you know, previous eras, you would have, you know, your mother and your grandmother and your aunt and, you know, your sisters helping you forage and tell you what foods are good. You know, do you have this not to eat, yeah. information passed down to you, but, mm-hmm. you know, as a enlightened human in modern times, you know, you're walking down the sidewalk, you can't just eat the berries off the bush. There you you're go. right. right. Yes. <laughs> the wisdom. But I think that's yeah. part of what he's saying is like, exactly. we've disconnected we've from that, that. that wisdom. And now people are talking about indigenous wisdom mm-hmm. uh, with the earth and with practices of sustainable farming and, and other things. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that we've lost and especially in academia and in oh, the yeah. scientific world. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I think he's saying like, let's, let's like open that up a little bit more. He talked mm-hmm. about the Dunbar's number, how societies oh, yeah. um, operate the best when you're about 150 people anymore, mm-hmm. yes. any less. I thought that was really like, so when he, he starts mm-hmm. talking about stuff like that and he's teaching me something, that's when I enjoyed the book a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, that, that information is passed down, you know, and cycles through those that, you know, 150 people, you know, any more than that, it just. Yeah. We start yeah. to break yeah. down. Yeah. yeah. So that's definitely what's happened, I believe. Next question is about the language the author uses. Is it objective and dispassionate or passionate and earnest? Is it biased, inflammatory, sarcastic? And does that language help or undercut the author's premise? Um, and I would say this is <laughs> Kind of like the previous question. Yeah. Yes, yes, and yes, yeah. and yes. He he is objective at points. He is um, he's at points really passionate. Mm-hmm. He's very definitely biased at certain points. He does kind of slide toward the sarcastic sometimes. He's biased, um, and I would say the language kind of functions both ways. I think in in many respects, when he's being focused on the objective and the dispassionate, he's actually pretty easy to follow. <laughs> and uh, like you said, Devin, it's it's when perhaps he goes off uh, into left field that he he sometimes you know cuts himself off. He loses his readers. I I, I think I you know? think yeah, he's in very big danger of of. Um, Having people's minds wander off mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, but can yeah. I just interject that yeah. I, I feel like that was his answer to I want to just have this experience. It's like the stream of consciousness form of writing. Oh. So he was trying, I feel like he was trying to integrate these two sides of himself that are almost mm-hmm. at war, like yeah. the professor mm-hmm. side oh, yeah. um, who goes to these fancy dinner parties uh, and then this other guy who is going out living in these earthen structures and eating roadkill. Yes, <laughs> might I add, and, and, and having his child eat roadkill and then hallucinate <laughs> while he's out in the woods with his child. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what? really responsible guy. <laughs> but no, but okay, so but but for me that sorry, it did distract, but it also kind of I think it added something to his purpose okay. because he was trying to trying to like come to terms with 
duality of who we are as people now in the modern era mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we have this side of having to be reasonable, of having mm-hmm. to like follow the rules, mm-hmm. being tied to our mortgage and the bedtime stories and mm-hmm. all of this stuff and that society brings and then the part of us that just wants to get out and experience. And, uh, you know, and so he's trying to pull that together. And that that part of his writing, I think, was was just to show us like, this is what it's like to get away from my thesis, to get away from my bullet points and my really tight knit arguments. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to lie on this mountaintop and I'm just going to yeah. like feel and I'm trying to record that for you. Yeah. And he had yeah, some subtle point. humor in there. I mean, Definitely. I think this guy would be just, I don't know, fun to hang out with because he would just be so dry. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, mm. I don't know. I just, the style of writing I don't think is accessible to everyone. You have to mm-hmm. be in the mood for it. You have to have the time for it, which is, I think, what my problem was. I just didn't have so. time. I felt rushed a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the reader really has to stop. I remember reading multiple sentences and paragraphs over and over again. And there were times where I had to look up words. I won't lie. Oh, there were multiple words in here. I was like, I have no idea that. what that means. <laughs> and so you have to pause. You have to look the word up and then... Get back into the groove. Yeah, so there's yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just... That part to me turns me off because I think it hinders his objective of what he's trying to tell us. Mm, interesting. I mean, kind of, I don't know, too I, You know, I, I, I thought of this while you were explaining uh, your pushback there, Jana. <laughs> and, and that was, did, did you notice during the, the whole telling of this story, I'll call it this journey that he's taking, um, he starts out um, really sad because he ha- is unable to tell story and and you know his son keeps asking dad tell me a story Mm -hmm. and the first time that happens he says something like i don't have any and then you watch throughout the journey particularly as you know he's talking to his son tom they're on the same um journey uh at least for the first section of the book that uh he he makes some halting attempts at telling a story and they, they come off pretty pretty uh, not so great at the beginning, <laughs> mm-hmm. and but by the end of this this mm-hmm. journey that he's taking with his son outdoors, um, he actually does tell a full fledged story, and it was engaging. It mm-hmm. was one of the parts of that book where he kind of wanders off into another form of writing that I actually enjoyed. I mean, it's like, yes, Dad, yes, you finally got a story, and then at the very end of the book, or very close to it, Tom um, says, you know, another, hey, Dad, tell me a story. And the dad says, um, it's time for you to tell your own. Yeah. And I thought that was a pivotal moment. Goosebumpy. Goosebumpy, yes. So um, I appreciated that 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 use of language resonated with me. I wasn't always happy with the flip-flop back and forth, but yeah. Yes, and the stories kind of come out of the dawn of consciousness, I think. The Mm -hmm. dawn of symbolism, I think, Mm -hmm. is kind of what he's tying together. Um, when there's an I and there's a you and we recognize that, then that's when stories can come. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I thought was a little bit ironic is that he's using a medium, which is language, um, to to tell this story while at the same time kind of railing against the very idea of language and symbols as as impeding us from having real experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he says... um, we're almost all below the surface. Most of what I am and what determines my actions on a conscious level wells up from my unconscious. Mm. Um, 
And language works at the level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Almost nothing of what we are is determined by our consciousness or resides in it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It leaves you kind of confused about what his point was. But I think you're onto something, Jana, that he was was trying to write what he felt. and, and, And that can be very difficult to put into words. After reading being a human, what do you think the implications of his ideas are for the future? Are there long or short-term consequences to the issues raised in this book? Are they positive or negative, affirming or frightening? Jana, would you lead us off? Yeah. um, So as we've discussed, he feels that the upper Paleolithic period, so starting around 50,000 years ago, um, was the pinnacle of human experience. And then uh, when it hit the Neolithic, which was when agriculture uh, started to become a thing um, and people were in more fixed settlements, so they weren't roaming, hunter, hunting, hunting, they were not roaming and hunting and gathering, mm-hmm. um, that that was sort of the beginning of many of our modern ills. Mm-hmm. And that chapter can be a little depressing. Yes. Um, but it was also, to me, fascinating Um, you know, there's a decline in terms of our human health. He points out that domesticated animals, whether sheep, humans, or astonishingly fish, have smaller brains than their wild counterparts. So if we were to, he's basically saying if we were to compare our brain with that of a a person from the upper Paleolithic, we would see that our brains have shrunk. Um, (laughs) So our mental health or our mental um robustness is diminished because we aren't faced with all these problems that they had to solve at the time to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just much easier to to go to the grocery store. You're not having to make some of the same kind of decisions that you were mm-hmm. there. And he also says that we're so specialized um, True. that we, we no longer have all of our faculties that we once had. Mm-hmm. Um there's just a whole ton of items that are wrong <laughs> that come about from the Neolithic. You know, uh-huh. our diet becomes less varied. We start to farm um, only certain plants. So it's a monoculture, which isn't as good for the sustainability of the ecosystem. Mm. And then once yeah. we have foods on hand all the time, uh, that leads us to eat more than we really should. You know, he's talking about how they used to have a diet of uh, feasting and famine. Mm -hmm. And he writes, like wolves, we are built to glut and then starve. Regular meals are deadly. And if you look at the science, actually, you know, my doctor is saying Mm -hmm. now, yeah, you could do the intermittent fasting. Oh, yeah, it's 100% Um, legit. It says that, Mm -hmm. you know, it it helps people actually live longer. And that goes back to who we were for so many years. Um, And he has a whole chapter where he interviews a a hog farmer. that's kind of depressing, you know, mm-hmm. when you talk about how we treat animals. And he says that due to the Enlightenment and maybe Neolithic too, but that was, I guess, the beginning of what he calls desouling yes. of both animals and plants. He makes a claim that, like, it's not just um, that that we eat animals nowadays, but that back then it was a more of a sense of, uh, I'm gonna, th- I'm gonna thank this animal and this plant, I'm going to be in a relationship with it. And I do believe that mm-hmm. it has a consciousness mm-hmm. instead of just that you don't, you don't have a soul, you don't matter. I'm just going to take whatever I need and wow. use you to my 
advantage to the exploitation of the earth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the whole thing of which comes up today with coronavirus, you know, being in domestication or living quarters with animals and having them on a large scale with farming contributes to transferring infectious diseases right. to humans, um, not to mention the destruction of their, you know, their natural habitat mm-hmm. um, and diseases coming out. Mm. So that's, that's long-winded, sorry, but that was just, it, it was overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And depressing, like yeah. you said. The implications for the future, I think, definitely, for me, overwhelmingly, is the environmental impact that mm-hmm. we're, I mean, we're destroying this earth. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go with what you were saying, Jana, about how um, hunter and gatherers used to have a more one-on-one personal relationship with the animals that they killed for food, you know, they would a religious experience almost for them. Right. They would mm-hmm. they would ask for forgiveness yeah. and they would use all the body parts and they realized the sacrifice that these animals made. Right. Um, something that stuck out to me um, was the part where he talked about um, the Neolithic man, how they started using fire mm-hmm. to destroy large areas of land um, mm-hmm. so they could, you know, farm on do it they, and, um, and, and live on it. Yeah. Um, and he said that this is when humans also transitioned um, their allegiance to a transcendental being. So instead of um, apologizing to each animal they killed and each plant they killed, they just destroyed a lot and then said, well, sorry to this one being exactly. instead of having to focus ah. on the individual. And I was like, wow, is this the origin of God? I mean, no, that goes, the belief in God goes farther back than that, right? Well, he does say how the upper Paleolithic man wouldn't have want his wouldn't have mediated his experience through a single priest that the mm-hmm. upper paleolithic man or woman would have recognized their experience in many gods and in kind mm-hmm. of that in the neolithic it became narrowed down to like a guardian yeah. or a priest who was a oh, mediator yeah. right and was... then you started giving money to the church and yeah. then you're like yeah. then the church mediates your experience with the rainfall because you yeah. are praying for rainfall and the church says mm-hmm. oh well god will bless you um, you need to tithe. There yeah. was a whole chapter about so that. So interesting. That yes. stuff is fascinating the to me. And there's there a line that he yeah. says, the desire for convenience is deadly. Ah. And we see that yeah. all over the place. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, to go back to what you were saying about the relationship with the animal and it being like a, it being a sacred it relationship. And you can mm-hmm. see that in the cave paintings, mm-hmm. which um, I visited Lascaux, where they say this is like the pinnacle of the upper Paleolithic art. Right. And I didn't get to see the actual paintings because mm-hmm. they have a, a, a new um, a replica a grotto that you mm-hmm. go in. But mm-hmm. just to see a lot of those paintings are about the hunt and, mm-hmm. and about the shamanism that kind of accompanied that and it being a mystical and a spiritual mm-hmm. experience. And that's, mm-hmm. I guess, that's where symbols kind of started. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know the drawing right. of the buffalo on the wall isn't the actual buffalo, but you understand right. what's going what it on. it stands for, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that, that all tied together neatly for me, and mm-hmm. I really, de- <laughs> it was depressing. <laughs> I, mean, you can, I mean, you can see what's happening. The greed yes. and the convenience and the, and the, you know, I got mine. And the diabetes and the obesity. Yeah, there yeah. You go. and the eating constantly. And the tooth and the, decay. Right. Yeah. All that, yes, we have our... Neolithic ancestors to thank for. (laughs) Fire's bad. Yeah. Well, uh, in light of all that depressing information, what solutions does the author propose? Are the author's recommendations concrete, sensible, doable? What do you think, Jana? So, so one thing he talks about is taking a symbols fast. Um, 
And that is that you're you're wanting to have a, a real contact with reality that's that's unprocessed by language, by priests, by systems of thought, by pictures, by presumptions, by templates, by vanities, by rules or institutions. Mm. It is the simplest idea. It is merely to do what all the young children do all the time until we ruin them. Ooh. And I, I love that quote because I think he's saying that's just all about living in the moment, which I think is a lot about what mysticism is mm-hmm. and interacting with whether, you know, the divine or the natural world, the universe is just that you are living in that. You're being as a child. And I think Christ talked about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a powerful idea. And I think that he is trying to grapple with how do I do that in my daily life, I'm also a father. I am also responsible, um, you know, to, to my job, to the university Mm -hmm. and how, how can we do that? And I think you, yeah, sure. You can go out Charles Foster and like live in this hut Mm -hmm. and eat roadkill. Does that make you feel better about yourself and, and fast and have this, you know, have this, uh, epiphany, um, but that's not, I don't think that's long-term sustainable, but what he is, right. I think what he's calling us to do is to, to say, well, we, we're not going to be able to go back to be being in this upper paleolithic lifestyle, but we have tools at our disposal. Like what mm-hmm. he talks about, um, his mom who didn't go outside a lot, but just had this beautiful soul. And I feel like she grappled with a lot of, of things, and he came to realize that she did have a wildness in her. Yes, um, but she had other tools to access it, like maybe music. And he does talk about music and dance as being kind of other pathways to experience mm-hmm. this. It's almost like they're they're shortcuts that we can still avail ourselves of mm-hmm. because they bypass yeah our 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 minds. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a point in in that final chapter where he was talking about his mother, and I love that that description of her as uh, she found the wild but from a different direction that uh, she learned it through uh, as he says motherhood marriage snotty nosed school kids and the high culture of Europe I thought that was quite a combination but um, she somehow uh, managed to embody both those things and and he says if we're careful and keep our cognition on a leash Mm -hmm. it can help us to sniff our way back to the place where we were born. So, yeah, yeah, he's talking about tools, but there's two sets. You know, we, we take our culture, our civilization, our cognition, and those give us tools. But there's also the tools of the mystics and the ecstatics. And he says those are the primary tools, and we have to keep them primary because that's our main way of knowing uh, the things that really matter. Uh, it's it's uh, that relationship to people and things uh, that we have encountered directly, not uh, mediated by our thinking or our language. And and so, yeah, he, he's touching on a solution here. I don't think he's given us really concrete points to work with. I think maybe he wants us all to work that out ourselves like he does, like, you know, take your son out and go live in a ditch for a couple of weeks. Might not work for everybody, <laughs> but... You know, uh, yeah, I think he's trying to inspire some mm-hmm. some some encounters, some journeys like he's just taken. Yeah, and he, yeah go sorry, ahead. Sorry, Barb. Um, I'm just going to say he he encourages, I mean, maybe a solution is, and I'm maybe grasping at straws here, bringing back the love of 
animals and the love mm-hmm. of nature and the love mm-hmm. of, of women. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says, the very language we use to discuss the past speaks of tools, hunters, and men. When every statue and painting we discover cries out to us that this Ice Age humanity was a culture of art, the love of animals, and women. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. got the language is all about fighting tools, men, yeah. and what what's tangible, what you can see and what you can touch mm-hmm. is animals, nature, and women. Mm-hmm. And the Venus figurines. Mm-hmm. I thought that was that gave yeah. me another bumps. fascinating little <laughs> rabbit trail he takes you down. He does. There's so much here. There's so much. But yeah, I I guess just to add on to what you were saying, Barb, I really mm-hmm. like the quote that he says that we're wild creatures designed for constant ecstatic contact with Earth, heaven, trees, and gods, and we wonder why lives built on the premise that we are mere machines. And spend time in centrally heated, electronically lit greenhouses seems suboptimal. Mm. That's that's an excellent. He quote. nails it there, doesn't yeah. he? I think that's that's it. Yeah. You know, get back to nature, get out of your house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not. And he does point out that like it's not necessarily that we go to religion. It's more of like a specific aspect of religion. He says the mis- mystical literature of every culture that has ever existed mm-hmm. um, that is skeptical about the value of religion. Um, and that that is the the best known literature of this quest. Mm-hmm. Mm. I need a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> That's deep. It sure is. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I feel kind of wrung out after. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot. Mm. It was. And Jenna, you brought up a question about the author recommending that we get away from symbols, like you said. Uh, and yet, those are the very things that make us human. They're what give us our particular human consciousness that is exhibited in that upper Paleolithic artwork we were just talking about. How do we simultaneously embrace our humanity yet transcend it? Yeah. How do we do that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Symbols. I mean, so enlighten me, you guys. (laughs) Um, Is the author saying symbols are bad or symbols are good? Does anybody know? I, I don't know. I felt like that was that was a part that I thought was a little confusing mm-hmm. in his argument because he wanted to say, oh, the Upper Paleolithic, which is when symbolism began. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And when you look at this artwork that, mm-hmm. you know, everyone just gushes about mm-hmm. the cave mm-hmm. paintings that 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 was this amazing time period and we're at the epitome of what we were meant to be. But then also that we're also at some kind of decline because... It evolved into emojis. Yeah. I mean, that's where we're at now. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the, the, the symbol is the interferer in our, like, experience with the, with, with the thing. Now we have mm-hmm. the, the symbol instead of the experience. Yeah. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Oh, it sure does. Yeah. So yeah. I would like to interview him about this. So if you're listening, Charles, <laughs> maybe you could help us and you comment on this. Because this, this part, I think, was a little confusing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Jan will go out and eat roadkill with you. or at least hunt mushrooms (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh, let's talk a little bit about specific passages in the work that struck us as significant interesting profound amusing whatever uh disturbing um what was a memorable passage that you would like to bring up jana uh I think part of it was just the desouling of the natural world, that Neolithic period. Mm-hmm. Um, there were very many 
problems. One of them that I thought was interesting was that he said that we encountered a loss of leisure time. Oh, yeah. Um, and we haven't really discussed that mm-hmm. as much, but um, I think he was trying to say that when we were living in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, that yes, we needed to spend probably more of our time looking for food, right? Mm-hmm. But that we didn't have all of these other demands on our time. And so we could, you know, tell stories and we could enjoy ourselves in a way that sometimes it feels like we can't uh, because we're boxed into all of the responsibilities that we have. He talks about responsibility was invented in the Neolithic era. Uh, Yes. In in a loss of of freedom, of a certain freedom and and being tied down. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, one memorable passage for me, and it was not only memorable, but just laugh out loud funny, was um, in the Neolithic Spring chapter. And he's hanging out with some friends of his who are farmers in Wales. And uh, they've had a few beers, and they're starting to warm up in conversation. And he starts uh, rattling on about uh, his theory that dominion is something that farmers are seeking when they go into farming, and you know, first of all, the you know his his buddies, the the two farmers, are are just about rolling on the floor laughing at this idea, and you know they ask him, "Are you serious?" And oh, oh yes, I'm serious, and then they laugh some more because you know they've lived it, and um, then they go on to disabuse him of his notion of dominion being connected with farming, and and you know said things like, hey, "Do you think we go into farming, you know, to watch a hailstorm destroy our?" entire crop of of grain in a single storm do we go into farming to watch hoof and mouth disease destroy our entire herd and then we'd have to burn their bodies and bury them in a ditch you think that that's dominion you're you're full of something very (laughs) (laughs) common around a farm but yeah and and then they they explain why they do farm and uh, the wife, the farmer, uh, the farming wife explains it. It might sound hokey, but we farm because we love this land. We love it. We love its animals. We want to be here. We're you know ready to roll with whatever nature throws at us because we love this land. And you know, I found it really amusing. First of all, to to see him taken down a peg because by that point in the book, I was a little tired of his pompous attitude, but (laughs) (laughs) he really needed to be taken down a peg. And I, I really appreciate it. And I also have to say, I have to appreciate his honesty in, uh, setting up this whole conversation in the book. I mean, he, he's, yeah, they, they pretty much took him down a peg and he was humble enough to say, yes, that, that my ideas were, were full of bull. (laughs) And I appreciated that. Uh, did you have a memorable passage you wanted to mention, Devin? I mean, there were quite a few. Um, yes. You know, I don't know, kind of like what you were saying, um, he describes the human relationship with nature as happening in two ways. You either want to conquer it or you want to, you know, live alongside of it. And mm-hmm. to your point, I think those farmers that you were talking about definitely are wanting to work alongside of it and, right. and, and work with nature. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously there are, you know, the large factory farms are the exact opposite, mm-hmm. but um, 
you know, that uh, he talked about um, evolution. He says, you know, evolution comes from the edges. Um, oh, yeah. His sentence, turn the world comment. into a monoculture and you will have shorter edges and thus less change and thus less evolution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you push away the things that are different from what the norm is, mm-hmm. you're only hurting your your major group. Your, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he does say that um, when he's talking about the skills that people used to have in the upper Paleolithic um, what I was talking about before, mm-hmm. that it is a narrowing of what the farmers do right. than what the hunter-gatherers did. Right. The skills um, and the knowledge, the wisdom. And now, if you're an assembly line worker, it's even more narrow and specialized. And he says once the skill was not used, it was lost. So I think there's a there's a fear that part of our humanity could be lost or, or, or mm-hmm. cut off, or somehow le- left behind, that we have the capacity for more. Mm -hmm. and expansiveness. And I I, just to go back to the idea about the land and the farmers, um, there was one quote in the book that I really liked, um, which had to do with another scientist. I'm not sure his Mm -hmm. name is Griffiths, who was interviewing some indigenous people in Africa and the Arctic, and that they told him that the only solution to violence and other antisocial behavior was the land. They Mm. meant the natural entitlement of all wild people, and that's all people, to all the wild earth. And Mm. so I think when you're looking for solutions um, to kind of go back to our relationship with the land as part of the land Mm -hmm. and to be in that kind of perspective with the land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's hard. We We have so many people that we have to feed. Right. We have to house, mm-hmm. and that create waste and trash, and yeah. need a space to be. And right. he talked about that he as did. how the population—it's like a a cycle where once you start farming, you have more calories that mm-hmm. increases reproduction. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, and then, and then once you have more people, you have to feed them. You need more space. You need more food. Mm-hmm. And whereas yeah. with the hunter gatherer, I'm assuming he was implying that the population was kept at certain levels. And he said that there was plenty of food to go around, and if another tribe was bothering you, you could move. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, there was more flexibility. Yeah, mm-hmm. more space. That. Yeah, um, just a neat book all around. Mm-hmm. 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 But wow, <laughs> a good word for it. <laughs> well, thank you, Devin and Jana, for a great discussion of being a human by Charles Foster. Next month's pick is the novel, The Last Town on Earth, by Thomas Mullen. And here's a brief blurb about it. Set against the backdrop of one of the most virulent epidemics that America ever experienced, the 1918 flu epidemic, Thomas Mullen's powerful, sweeping first novel is a tale of morality in a time of upheaval. This is a book you won't want to miss. Copies of The Last Town on Earth are available in print from a library, in audio CD format from the Front Range Library Consortium, and in ebook and e-audiobook formats from the Front Range Downloadable Library. So, read or listen to the book, then join our discussion next month. See our program notes for details on how to share your questions and comments with us. And thanks so much for listening to Book Chatter, the book group for busy people.